All right, we're recording. Today, I'm super excited to be talking with Zach Rego. He was heavily involved in the Netflix documentary Chasing Coral, which focused on capturing the effects of global warming on coral reef ecosystems around the world. And at the moment, Zach is a PhD student at the Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology. And now, without further ado, I would like to welcome Zach Rego to the JJS Express. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right. Well, I thought we could start off with some background information. So for me, I grew up in Colorado, right? But I became interested in the ocean during my eighth grade semester abroad, where my family and I sailed down the Pacific side of Central America, uh, mainly in Costa Rica. And I remember that in the northern parts of Costa Rica, the snorkeling was beautiful. The reefs were super healthy. Um, and the snorkeling was amazing, in particular in Santa Rosa National Park. However, when we traveled further south um, down the coast, I realized that the water was getting super warm. And in one spot um, called Manuel Antonio National Park, our boat read a temperature of 92 degrees Fahrenheit. So the water was crazy warm. And also the snorkeling there was a lot less impressive. The reefs um, were bleached, uh, which means that they were um, very white or they were dead and there was a bunch of algae growing over them. So there was pretty much no snorkeling there. Um, And this was my first realization that something was going on, but it really wasn't until I um, watched the documentary Chasing Crawl on Netflix that I understood the full scope of this issue. So this is why I reached out to you, Zach. Um, However, you know, that's enough about me. So getting back to you, I believe you also grew up in Colorado. How does a kid from Colorado get interested in coral and eventually become involved in the documentary Chasing Coral? Um, Yeah, so I I had kind of a a similar experience to you where um, even though growing up in Colorado, I had um, multiple opportunities throughout my childhood to spend time in the ocean. Um, I was really lucky. My my father, um, really both my parents are, are educators, but my dad's part of a program there in Colorado that takes about 40 high school kids um, out to the Big Island of Hawaii every year for a, a marine biology course and high school credit. Um, so even at a very young age, I grew up um, essentially going on these trips and, and being kind of uh, in my youth and being able to shadow high school kids that were learning about marine biology, doing the whole snorkeling thing, um, learning about the biodiversity of oceans as well as um, Hawaiian culture. Um, so I, I definitely got engaged with the ocean for the first time there. and. Um, sort of just continued to pursue opportunities that allowed me to work with corals. Um, and that ultimately led me to working like in the aquarium industry um, out there in Colorado, where um, I was working for a company called Elite Reef that is essentially a um, like a hobbyist shop um, for marine aquarists where um, you got, you know, your corals, your fish, all of that stuff and um, utilized that as a way to, to kind of keep me in touch with the things that I was interested in in terms of marine biology. Um, and then, yeah, just continued to, to find opportunities where I worked obviously through Chasing Coral and um, through View Into the Blue, which is the company that uh, made the cameras we used during the film. Um, and so, yeah, even though I was, you know, up there in the Rocky Mountains, um, I just kind of stayed on the path and, and found little niches, even in, in the backyard of Denver, Colorado, to um, pursue those interests. And then ultimately, uh, you know, got to really do some cool things, particularly with uh, the coral bleaching monitoring um, that accompanied the Chasing Coral Project, which was a massive project we worked on for for many years. 
Um, and, and now I'm a PhD student at uh, the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology here on Oahu. Now, I know you have a friendship with Dr. Charlie Veron, who wrote Corals of the World, one of the earliest and the most comprehensive books on different types of coral. How did you discover his work, and how would you describe the relationship you share today? Um, yeah, so honestly, it, it always just kind of stemmed from like a, a love for taxonomy, especially growing up in Colorado. I was, uh, you know, certainly spending my time in, in the foothills and on the front range, like catching snakes and frogs and whatnot, and had all these guidebooks where I was just trying to identify them and find out what things were and what they were named scientifically. And, um, you know, that joy spilled over into to the ocean world when I started spending time in Hawaii. And, um, you know, corals of everything can be a little bit more cryptic in terms of their taxonomy. They're um, a little bit more complicated to identify. And um, it just turned into a niche that I was really interested in. And uh, my experience in the aquarium world was, um, you know, really just kind of finding a love for what is this new coral that we've got um, in the shop and being able to identify it um, to the best of our ability. And, um, you know, the, the biggest resources out there were all written by, by Charlie. And, um, you know, Corals of the World is to this day one of the, the most commonly used, um, you know, metrics for identifying a coral, at least morphologically. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I'd read so much about his work and used his resources as identification keys for years and years. And um, then our paths crossed, you know, to a certain extent by chance and, and circumstances in Australia when we were working on chasing coral. And, um, you know, from there, it, it's turned into a, uh, somewhat of a friendship where we've we've been able to work to, with each other not only on the project but um, you know also on a couple assessment research projects since then and um, yeah it's just been this kind of roundabout cool way that I got to meet somebody that I, I really looked up to and admired his work and that's transi transitioned into uh, you know him being sort of a mentor to me but more than anything just a, a friend that I've been lucky enough to you know spend some time with. So I noticed in Chasing Coral, you started off sort of as an underwater camera specialist um, working for View Into the Blue, but then you emerged as, as this main figure in the documentary. I'm sure it was because of your extreme passion for coral, um, and it was super compelling to watch. Um, however, did you ever think that you would be playing such a big part in this documentary? Um, no, definitely not. Um... And honestly, I don't even know if I would go as far as like camera specialist, right? I, I was just really a young, um, you know, just graduated college, young kid that had, uh, you know, found myself working for View Into the Blue and their nonprofit half team for oceans. And um, I think more than anything, I was just uh, young and willing to go out into the field and maybe more of a field specialist than anything that, um, you know, was just willing to go spend the immense amount of times out in the water and um, in remote places. And um, yeah, like you said, I was never supposed to be, you know, in the film. I was really just there to ensure that our cameras were, were functioning how we designed them to. Um, and over time, I think that uh, my passion and my love for corals and coral reefs and um, how much this issue and sharing it with the world meant to me um, kind of led them to, to bringing me more into the mix. And um, I certainly wasn't necessarily aware of, you know, how in depth that role would be until really the film came out. I just, uh, kind of there to, to do my job and um, make sure that we got this this issue out to the public. But um, my exact role certainly wasn't something that I signed up for. It's just kind of where it led. 
yeah, it was pretty incredible to watch. Now, you covered this in the documentary, but could you tell us about some of the challenges you faced when filming the coral bleaching events in Chasing Coral? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the list is endless, but ultimately, if you, you really think back to the film, like uh, the original goal was to utilize these really extensive camera systems that um, our team at View into the, to the Blue developed. And, um, you know, ultimately, we got nothing from them. Um, in the Northern Hemisphere, when we obviously ran into the issue of um, our cameras falling out of focus, essentially, um, where all of that data, unfortunately, um, you know, the images we would have had, had they worked perfectly, weren't going to be very useful because the bleaching wasn't extensive that we would have captured in the first place. Um, but technological issues, when you're, you're working with, um, you know, new and novel and, and interesting technologies and uh, kind of a, an unfriendly location like the ocean is always going to pose a challenge for, for filmmakers or scientists alike. Um, that's certainly challenge number one. And then um, there's just the environment, right? There, there's storms, there's days that you can't work um, and, and just a lot of logistics. So it's, uh, you kind of just have to go with the flow to a certain extent and um, you know, ride the wave when things are working and um, you know, be on your toes and, and think critically and uh, be as creative as possible to solve problems when um, you're in remote locations and you might not have all of the tools and resources at your fingertips. So, um, you know, in a way, it's certainly frustrating, but at the same time, it can actually be, um, you know, part of the fun and all of it and in, in solving problems. And, um, you know, ironically, failure, um, I think, in life and, and in science in general tend to, um, you know, drive you forward to more interesting questions or, or more interesting work. So, um, you know, failure is not always a bad thing. I think had those failures not occurred, the, the film wouldn't have been, um, you know, nearly as as good or a, as impactful for a lot of folks. I think the, the small failures that we had largely uh, provided a, a really great story for people to connect with and, and people to relate to. Yeah, it definitely seemed like an adventure. Um, now, if I remember correctly, um, in the places where the most extreme cases of bleaching occurred, in places like Lizard Island on the Great Barrier Reef, um, you guys had to do manual time lapses. So going underwater multiple times a day, just taking one picture after another um, and repeating this process for months. Yep, exactly. So rather than ending up using the cameras that we spent so much time designing, uh, you know, things can move really quickly and um, you know nature was throwing us curveballs and uh, we essentially just had to do exactly what you're saying jump on the the opportunity to actually capture something as it was happening and um, yep just as you said we we were going multiple times a day every single day on lizard island and um, just shooting the same exact sites over and over again for um, essentially two months to, to document those changes but all done by hand yeah that's gnarly um, so now I think it would be helpful for us to take a step back and to talk in greater detail about coral itself. What is coral exactly? Yeah, so corals are, are super complicated little creature in their own ways, but yet at the same time, they're fairly simplistic. Um, so corals in their kind of simplest form, they're an animal, um, but they actually have a, an endosymbiotic relationship, meaning um, they're an animal that has a plant that lives inside of their cells that um, that plant's actually what's providing their energy. So 
Um, I joke that if it were to be humans to kind of put it into perspective, it would be like um, us having green skin because we had kind of algae cells inside of our skin. And rather than having a, a hamburger or a salad for lunch, we would go outside and we would sunbathe. Um, and that's how we would create our energy and how we would we'd grow our bones essentially. Uh, and, and for corals, that's allowing them to grow their skeletons, which allows them to continually grow upwards and outwards and um, continue to compete for that light and that photosynthesis that they need to have their energy. Um, so in short, they're animals that have a plant in their um, tissue that provides them the energy to build a rock. Yeah, they're super unique organisms. So what is the distinction between a coral and a coral reef? And something that I found very interesting is what is the natural life expectancy of corals and coral reefs? Well, a coral reef, so this is like the funny thing, right? So there's this kind of misconception that the term reef has some biological meaning when in reality, it's a geological term. So coral reefs are encompassed of corals, which are animals that are building the reef. But the reef itself is actually just the structural components. Um, it's that hard surface that's necessary for a coral organism to land on and to develop. But um, a reef itself is actually just a term for this solid structural component. Um, so reefs essentially are kind of perpetual, right? Um, like you can actually even look at um, places like, for instance, Capitol Reef National Park in Utah. Um, which essentially is just uh, an old coral reef from, um, you know, millions of years ago at the time when some of the Western United States was underwater and part of kind of an ocean basin. Um, so, so reefs are structures that kind of last forever, quote unquote, in terms of their structures still going to be there um, for massive amounts of geological time. Um, that being said, corals themselves um, while they're not going to last forever, um, theoretically, they don't necessarily have, you know, a life expectancy because they're continually replicating themselves. Um, so if you take one small piece of coral, like a fragment, so to speak, and place it somewhere else, um, that coral is genetically the same as what you took it from. So one of them can die, but in theory, that, that lineage or, or that individual um, is continuing on if there's a, a small fragment of it elsewhere. Um, so it's kind of a weird way to think about it. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of how we think of life expectancies for humans. Um, but a reef in itself is kind of continually building um, upon itself um, and constantly growing upwards and outwards. So it's a, a kind of this perpetual thing that's going on. Um, and then in terms of just the ocean in general, what do coral reefs do for the this ecosystem of life underwater. Yeah, right. So the oceans are massive, massive places with an incredible amount of space, but coral reefs are, are really unique in the sense that they're kind of um, like the, the nurseries of the ocean. There's um, massive biodiversity with this wealth of different organisms that inhabit a coral reef. Um, and, and there's some calculations that say that, you know, upwards of one third of all species around the ocean um, you know, inhabit or utilize coral reefs at some point in their life cycles. Um, basically, coral reefs make up about less than a percent of the ocean floor, yet a third of all life in this massive expanse of water um, relies on them one way or another, and, and they're extremely tied into kind of global food webs of how our oceans function. So, 
Um, not only are they biodiversity hotspots, but they play massive ecological roles for the ocean as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for us, quite frankly, in many circumstances. True, true. So then expanding on where I think you were headed with that, having healthy reefs benefits humans in many ways, right? I know that some reefs have medicinal properties um, that can be used to treat human conditions. And also, I know that coral reefs provide barriers to waves and storms um, from the sea. So can you elaborate on some of these benefits humans receive from healthy coral reefs? Yeah, for sure. I mean, going back to what we've kind of already talked about of them constantly kind of competing for light and competing for photosynthesis and this concept of them perpetually growing upwards and outwards. Um, you know, that's essentially them, um, you know, having this structure off of our coasts that um, break up big waves and allow us to have a little bit more protection from rowdy oceans, especially in um, you know, like a situation like a hurricane or a large storm. Um, you know, they're the best seawall that nature can build because they're constantly working on it. Um, and so in their destruction, um, it's kind of making a, a functional coral reef into, you know, a rubble field in some state, in some cases, um, you're really kind of taking away that boundary and allowing those bigger waves to, um, to have a larger impact on our coastlines, uh, which obviously impacts many, um, you know, um, civilizations or, or communities around the planet. Um, and then when it comes to medicinal properties, like there's certainly, um, you know, a handful of um, drugs and whatnot that have already been developed um, using marine species that you find on coral reefs. Um, but perhaps even more importantly is our lack of understanding of like these novel chemistries and molecules that exist on corals. Um, we have so much work to do in the ocean is sort of the last frontier that um, they're disappearing so quickly that, um, you know, odds are that we're missing out on really great opportunities to um, help humanity in terms of um, coral reefs medical value by letting them disappear faster than we can kind of keep up. Yeah. Then in terms of how these reefs are dying, um, this brings us to coral bleaching events. They are precursors to coral death, and they are first noticed in the 1980s. Um, you know, you've witnessed this firsthand in Lizard Island in the Great Barrier Reef. According to the documentary, almost 30% of the coral in the Great Barrier Reef died in 2016 alone. Can you describe what is happening here and the changes that coral goes through in its progression towards death? So going back to like what a coral is and how it functions, um, that algae that's in its tissue, um, it's producing food for the coral and in some circumstances producing the vast majority, upwards of 90% of the energy that coral needs to, to grow and, and be happy. Um, when when corals hit a certain threshold of temperature, and in many cases it's um, you know two degrees Celsius above what their normal value is, um, those algae that are producing all the food and, and yummy energy for the coral actually transition into um, producing really nasty stuff instead of instead of energy and food, um, and those nasty molecules end up basically harming the coral from the inside out, and the corals make a decision to basically say, well. If I don't get rid of these algae, they're going to kill me anyways. Um, so I remove it from the system and it leaves behind the coral's transparent tissue. Um, and then you can see the bright white skeleton underneath, leaving behind kind of that stark white coral reef that, that you see in the imagery or in chasing coral, for instance. Um, and that's not actually the coral dying. It's, it's a survival mechanism that's giving them an opportunity. Um, but as our oceans get warmer and stay warmer for longer periods of time, 
um, those corals can only go so long without having that energy, without having their food source. Um, and so in many cases, they can ultimately die if that temperature stays high for too long. Um, and that's really what chasing coral was about. And, um, you know, we've continued to see that trend increasing over the past decade or so. Um, so obviously 2015 and 2016 were, were fairly bad bleaching years. Um, but actually in 2017, we had, um, you know, pretty equally bad bleaching occurring in Australia. Um, and then we've actually had, um, you know, fairly bad bleaching um, in 2020 that's largely been overshadowed by the craziness of the world and, and the coronavirus and, and many other factors going on um, this year. But there's been bleaching in, in Southern Asia um, along the Great Barrier Reef in the Southern sector. And there's actually currently bleaching going on right now in the Southern Caribbean places like Belize. Yeah, so in the, in the documentary, um, there was a <laughs> prediction at the end that said, um, that in the next 30 years, they predict that all coral reefs um, will be bleached or lost. So um, in the years since you filmed that, how have things changed? Um, the frequencies of, of these events are, are certainly continually increasing. And, um, you know, those projections are, are certainly, um, you know, worrisome. I think the, the most concise ones are that, you know, by I think the year 2043, we expect to see kind of annual bleaching occurring. Um, and potentially by 2050, we're going to see at least, um, you know, potentially 90% of all coral reefs at a global scale being lost. Um, but that's not to say that all is all is for naught, right? The, these organisms are um, kind of prepared for resilience. Um, their reproductive strategies are incredibly interesting as broadcast spawners, and um, they can create a lot of babies quite quickly. So even if we're left with 10%, um, that 10% theoretically can have the power to replenish ecosystems relatively quickly if we hold our end of the bargain. Uh, but yeah, it really comes down to us getting our act together in terms of um, emissions and, and limiting the amount of damage that we continue to do the environment over the next few decades. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just curious, is there a difference in the severity of coral bleaching in warmer waters versus colder waters? Um, and if tropical waters are warming, could coral reef transition to living further away from the equator in relatively colder water? Um, yeah, so there's kind of two questions there, but unfortunately that's not really how it works. So um, just because a coral is in colder water, it doesn't actually change that temperature threshold. So um, a good example of this would be like taking a coral from the Southern Great Barrier Reef relatively far away from, from the equator. Uh, their average temperature that they live in may be 26 to 28 degrees, somewhere in that realm. But for them, that two degrees Celsius still holds true. So for something that lives at 28 degrees, uh, once it hits 30, then it's going to start having, um, you know, the, the visible impacts of, of that stress, aka in bleaching. Um, however, if you live in relatively warm waters for say the, the Red Sea, for instance, where normal is 31 degrees, then it takes 33 degrees to upset them. So no matter where you are, whatever temperature that coral lives at, that two degree anomaly still impacts them in the same way. Um, so even if they move towards, um, towards colder water, any two degree anomaly above whatever their new normal is, is still gonna have the same impact on them. Um, but that's not the fifth, they, they actually can't necessarily move to colder water either. Um, as you move farther away from the equator, um, you know, seasons become more and more evident. Um, 
And the farther away you get, the longer your winters are. And, and winter essentially means less sunlight. Um, so as you move farther away, these are photosynthetic organisms that rely on that for their energy. Um, simply, they just don't have the, the photosynthetic availability for themselves in the winter anymore. Um, so there's a threshold as how far north or south they can move from the equator, um, simply based on the amount of availability of light um, in their winter months. So corals as they are right now kind of exist where they can exist all over the planet. We might see an increase in diversity perhaps um, in some of those northern and southern thresholds, um, but they can't move farther north or farther south to colder areas than they are already existing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so could you describe the function of coral fluorescing and how it acts as a protection mechanism for coral reefs? And also, just are there any other defense mechanisms that corals use um, that the audience might not be aware of? Yeah, so fluorescing's, you know, fluorescing's a, an interesting one because it's not necessarily them protecting themselves from heat. Um, it has more to do with them protecting themselves from UV radiation, much like we do. Um, when we go out on a sunny day, we put sunscreen on um, because sunlight and UV radiation can harm our skin and it can harm the skin of corals as well and the tissue of corals. Um, rather than putting on sunscreen like we do, they actually produce their own essentially in the form of a fluorescent protein um, that just happens to be remarkably beautiful and aesthetic to us. Um, but it's not necessarily a mechanism that's protecting them from um, heat. Um, there's a lot of work being done on the algae itself within the tissues. And we do know that there are, are particular, um, you know, clades or species of algae that may be more thermally tolerant than, than what's normal. Um, however, when we do see that type of trend, uh, a thermally tolerant algae, they tend to have some, some trade-offs and some, some negative aspects to them. The corals that do have thermally tolerant um, algae, they tend to not grow as rapidly. Um, there are trade-offs there that um, obviously it's better to be alive and not grow than just to be dead, um, but it's, they're, they're not solutions necessarily. Um, they have adaptations. I mean, bleaching in itself is their best survival ship mechanism. Um, they're giving themselves an opportunity by bleaching it, and hopefully the temperature comes down and they can retake that algae and hopefully survive. Um, but they, the frequency at which these events are happening, they, they simply just can't really keep up with. Yeah, so are these adaptations newly learned behaviors or have these mechanisms always existed and now we're just seeing corals use them a lot more frequently? Um, so they certainly have always been there. Uh, right now, it's kind of how, how frequently are they using them, right? Like um, the fact that bleaching exists kind of makes the suggestion that they have this capacity to cope with, with warm periods. Um, but that could also be a short-term thing in the past. We don't necessarily have that information because of our scientific understanding and our ability to work underwater um, you know, really only goes back about 50 to 70 years. Um, so our, our sampling period is quite limited. So there are questions that are really difficult to answer. Um, but we, we certainly know that this phenomenon of fluorescing, as far as we've seen, um, really only goes back to like the late 90s, where we saw it in, in limited factors in particular places. And now, I think really as a consequence of having more people in the water and more marine biologists looking at these issues, 
we're documenting it more frequently in other places. Um, so I think that that's probably a consequence of just actually having people observing it. Um, whereas if you go back even 40 or 50 years, we just simply don't have the amount of people and eyes underwater to be able to say for sure that this is something novel that's happening for the first time, um, but rather it's happening at, at a higher frequency and we have more people in the water to be able to see it, if that makes sense. I remember reading that the first bleaching event recorded was in the 1980s, so yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, now, getting back to fluorescing, um, I believe it was in New Caledonia where you saw massive, massive fluorescing across the reefs. And so could you describe what that was like to witness? Yeah, so I personally wasn't actually in New Caledonia, but there are, in New Caledonia, what happened there was kind of exceptional because it was happening across the board, massive um, ecosystems that were portraying these colors that you could see for, from like an aerial footage of these bright neon sections of corals. Um, for me, I was seeing it, you know, at small scales where you see a colony at Lizard Island where um, you're seeing bright yellow in an individual colony and kind of speckled amongst the reef, you had individual corals that were going through that fluorescence. Um, but it wasn't at the scale of New Caledonia. That was certainly the only example that I know of where you're seeing like at ecosystem scale, basically every single coral fluorescing um, like that. So that was quite unusual. Um, they could just say something about New Caledonia itself that um, either a particular species that's dominant on that reef um, tends to go through that fluorescence. Um, there's a couple different possibilities there, but we don't know for sure. It's kind of an open question. Mm -hmm. Now, could you give the audience a time frame from when corals go from being perfectly healthy to um, maybe fluorescing and then bleaching um, and then eventually dying and becoming covered in algae? Yes, every coral is a little bit different, but um, generally... Um, within a month, you can see healthy corals go from healthy to essentially um, dead. So that month in between is when you're going to see things like extensive bleaching. Um, and then, you know, in that last week or so of that month, you'll start seeing that mortality take hold. Um, you know, generally, in the corals that we do see die, um, fluorescing is going to occur somewhere in there, and it's going to be dependent on the species. Um, and it also kind of depends on where it's located on the reef. Like I said, the fluorescent is more of an adaptation for UV radiation. Um, so it certainly happens more so in those really shallow ecosystems where um, basically you've got these really warm weather events and you've got kind of stagnation, not a whole lot of mixing. Um, and that UV is also stressing out the coral. And so the coral is basically saying, well, I'm already bleached, I'm running out of energy, um, but UV is also hurting me. So I can kind of take my energy reserves and protect myself from one of these stressful variables. Um, but overall, um, if things stay warm for over a month, that's when things really start to take um, a downturn and you start to see mortality occurring. Yeah, so we were talking about um, an El Nino event earlier before we started recording, and I would like to bring it up again. So what is an El Nino event and how does it impact this time frame and how does it impact coral? Yeah, um, so El Ninos are um, a natural fluctuation within, within Earth at a global scale. Um, but ultimately what they do is they have impacts on the anomalies of temperature around the planet. Uh, 
So El Nino years um, are, are obviously playing a role in, in massive coral bleaching events at global scales because we see it first in 1998 where we have massive global coral bleaching. Um, then we see it again in 2010 where the same thing happens but not as devastatingly. Um, then 2016 um, was really equivalent if not even worse than 98. And once again, we see massive coral bleaching and mortality all over the world. So um, El Nino is kind of defined by really warm water moving towards the Americas uh, in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but it also has a variety of other impacts on things like trade winds. Um, and in Australia, particularly, what it does is it decreases wind and kind of increases stagnation amongst, um, amongst those coral reefs. So you, you really get a, a lack of mixing and um, ultimately get really warm pockets of water occurring in, in sections of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, so really at a global level, an El Nino is just further pushing that temperature up, right? We as humans and the concept of anthropogenic change has increased the, the water temperature and El Nino just kind of further pushes them over that tipping point. Um, so that's why we see El Nino years as incredibly bad bleaching years, because it's this additive effect of increases of temperature occurring at a global scale. And then just talking generally about um, global warming, could you explain to us how the ocean actually itself acts as a buffer to rising temperatures here on Earth? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, if you think about our atmosphere and our ocean, they work together always. There's this boundary. Um, where the two meet each other. And so um, the things that we put into our atmosphere, things like carbon dioxide or oxygen, for instance, um, the ocean and the atmosphere are interacting and they're, uh, they're dissolving um, both CO2 and oxygen into the water column. So uh, the ocean is actually just kind of like this giant carbon sink. Um, it's absorbed 93% of our carbon emissions. Um, and so that that energy and that heat energy has largely been buffered out by our ocean over the past hundred years. And now we're starting to see that kind of take effect in our oceans where all of that energy is finally starting to change um, different parameters in our oceans all the way from pH to obviously temperature. So um, the ocean has been our big buffering mechanism. It's bought us a lot of time essentially, but unfortunately um, now we're going to see rapid changes in our ocean as um, as that CO2 and all of that energy starts to show its face. Yeah, a very shocking statistic that I read was that if the ocean wasn't buffering um, this rise in heat, that the average land temperature would be 122 degrees Fahrenheit. It definitely uh, builds a respect for what the ocean does for our global climate and for uh, the stability of where we live and this little rock that we inhabit. It's crazy. And then um, could you tell us um, what you're doing now and what the future holds for you and your career? Yeah, I just started um, at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. So I started a PhD program. Um, right now, I'm actually not working on like anything particular to bleaching. I'm looking at this uh, phenomenon of coral reef halos, um, which if you look at like a satellite image of coral reefs and you look at kind of bombies, the central structure of a reef, um, you can actually see these really interesting vegetative patterns around them um, where essentially you have this barren area and then algae or seagrass, for instance, outside of that. Um, that's due to predator-prey interactions. So, um, for instance, uh, an herbivore will only travel so far away from the safety of the reef before it kind of hits a threshold of, of fear and their odds of being um, 
preyed upon are become so high that they just don't graze farther away. And so um, hopefully I'm, I'm gonna try and understand the mechanisms about how uh, those halos form, how they're altered um, based on different variables. Um, and ideally we can look at how they might be indicative of, you know, coral reef health. Um, and then long-term potentially be able to tie that into events like bleaching or um, particularly things like overfishing and other conservation tools um, to be able to use satellite images of coral and the vegetative patterns around them to kind of um, make predictions about what's going on on really remote reefs that are difficult for people to get to are really expensive to work on. And um, is, is that a, a, like a recent um, sort of field or discovery? About this, um, yeah. As I work in, um, you know, we've seen it. Um, if you go back even to the '60s, we see certain people talking about, um, you know, observing the halos and, and thinking about how it certainly must have something to do with predator-prey interactions. Um, but up until recently, um, my my advisor and um, Elizabeth Maiden, whose lab I work in, um, has really started to do some research into it. But uh, we're still really just kind of scratching the surface. So. Um, now we're going to really try and uncover some of the actual species interactions that um, alter them and, and see how we can kind of use the changes within a halo and the formation of halos um, to try and understand what that means in terms of different variables like um, herbivore densities and predator densities and um, hopefully some other abiotic factors, things like sunlight and um, even turbidity or different values, nutrient values. Um, so a variety of cool questions that we can ask about them that um, we're only beginning to kind of figure out. Wow. Yeah, I remember in the documentary it said that 25% of marine life um, relies on the coral reefs, but from from that um, uh, description of the halos, it seems like it it's probably a number greater than that. Could be, you never know. I mean, honestly, the deep ocean is, is where there's a lot of interesting work too. We just know so little and don't have the resources and technology yet to explore it in the way that we'd like to, but um, you know, many people are starting to think that massive proportions of the life on this planet could be living in the deep sea that we just simply don't know about. So certainly a frontier that um, the ocean in general has many, many questions just waiting to be answered right now. So it's exciting time. Yeah. Other than the fact that there are bad things also happening on coral reefs, but all the more reason to, to work hard and move as quickly as we can to learn as much as we can. Yeah, for real. Now, finally, I want to ask you more about what my generation can do to help the health of the ocean and coral reefs in particular. Um, obviously, we need to combat global warming, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it is definitely one of the biggest challenges of our generation. Um, but what can teenagers do specifically to help out the plight of coral? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question when you live in a place like Colorado, right? But at the same time, everything's interconnected. So um, in circumstances where you might not have a direct relationship with coral, it's about taking care of your own ecosystems and your own communities, right? Um, there's no silver bullet to fighting climate change. The answers are going to be dramatically different in different places of the world. Um, you know, like Boulder, Colorado, for instance, is, is a incredibly uh, green place to be. And the answers and the weaknesses that we have in Boulder, Colorado are um, certainly different than they are in, in Honolulu or in Sydney or London or wherever you are in the world. Um, 
So we can look inwards, whether that's um, into our own communities at the state level, the federal level, or even at the school level, the household level, your, uh, your friend group level. Um, being able to talk about what you know, being able to raise awareness, um, those are all great important things. Uh, but more than anything, it's about the skill sets that your generation develops, right? It's um, not everybody's going to be a scientist, but if you are, um, then hold on to whatever it is you're curious about because there are open questions no matter what and more work that needs to be done and all of that's incredibly important. Um, and if you're not going to become a scientist, then whatever you do, um, whatever skill sets you build and type of career that you ultimately make, you can always, no matter what, turn that into um, working in one way or another um, to do something that you're actually passionate about and care about, right? Um, like look at the Chasing Coral film. You've got this massive group of people who all have this kind of passion to, to share the story of coral reefs, but only a handful are scientists. There's also filmmakers, there's production people, there's um, lawyers, there's all of these different skill sets that came together for um, to unify for like one project with one common goal. And so uh, no matter what skill sets you end up building, you can apply that to, um, to really important things long-term. And I think that's the most important thing to take away for the next generation is um, it can feel overwhelming or feel like you have to be a scientist to do something or um, an environmentalist. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, so it seems like cultivating a shared consciousness for these immense issues is going to be the way that we change the future. For sure, man. All right. Well, that's, that's all the questions I had for you. Thanks so much for doing this. No, man, I appreciate it.